1: Known for delivering information about sexuality and relationships, sans the sleaze factor, while retaining all the accuracy, fun, and the you're kidding factor. Let's get to it. Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet. And now, here's your host, Lou Paget.
2: Welcome, everyone. And this Wednesday... It's exciting for me because I get to be a student this week. My two guests this evening are Douglas Braun Harvey and Michael Vigorito, and both of these gentlemen are marriage family therapists in San Diego area, and they deal with out-of-control male sexual behavior and taking care of your sexual health in drug and alcohol treatment, and ways to have people not have relapses. So to Doug and to Michael, welcome. Thank you so much for being here.
0: Thank you, Lou. This is Doug. Hello. This is Michael.
2: Hello, Michael.
3: So, gentlemen,
2: uh, when we spoke earlier, Doug, we talked of one of the things that I think is going to make things easier for people to understand because there's so much information in the area of sexuality and sexual addiction that I don't, even myself, who I know a fair amount in the area of sexuality, I am confused on what are the definitions.
0: Well, I think it's a really good question, Lou, and I think Michael and I can both comment on this. I think the most important thing is is this is not... a a medical Diagnosis. There's, this is not a condition that actually has a, an agreed-upon diagnosis in, in the way that we talk about diagnoses of a lot of things. So even the people who do the treatment haven't agreed on this. So what Michael and I can sort of comment on is the kinds of things people might be experiencing that are, are the, 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 the common elements of what is called either compulsive sexual behavior, sex addiction, out-of-control sexual behavior, and the newer term that is going to be most likely adopted by the, the the mental health field is hypersexuality mm-hmm. um, and so, so Michael what are your thoughts about just some of the basic things that you know we, we need to think about when people are trying to understand these this, these terms
3: well uh, when clients come to office a lot of times it's setting treatment priorities so we want to be able to open discussion for someone to get curious about what's happening uh, where it's different if someone's coming in uh, concerned regarding symptoms of depression we have we uh, surveys, we have checklists, we have criteria that we can then use to diagnose major depressive disorder, where we don't have that same benefit when it comes to problematic sexual behaviors or out-of-control sexual behaviors.
0: Mm-hmm. So We want
3: to be able to create the space to have that dialogue. Uh, so part of the work that Doug and I do besides providing groups for men and out-of-control sexual behaviors, we help train other professionals to prioritize and prepare for that, that conversation.
2: Because mm-hmm. I, I know, Doug, I have your book, Sexual Health and Drug and Alcohol Treatment, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. which is outstanding, but I know you also have uh, your latest book is, if I'm not mistaken, Sexual Health and Recovery.
0: Correct, and that's a, that's a professional counseling manual for counselors who will particularly provide treatment for people with drug and alcohol, uh, for drug and alcohol treatment that have high sex-drug-linked behavior. Uh, oftentimes, uh, people in drug and alcohol treatment confuse sex-drug-linked behavior with sex addiction. Uh, and so anytime somebody might have a sexual behavior that's really merged with their drug and alcohol use. They've, they've never really been sexual without drugs and alcohol, or they, the drug they become addicted to, let's say like crystal meth or something, uh, they became addicted to it because of the sexual benefits or the sexual aspect of, of and consequences of crystal meth use. People have sex for hours at a time and might be engaged in sexual activity that they're less inhibited to do, um, more exploratory. Uh, uh, and so it, people who are in drug and alcohol recovery may have that linkage with sex and drugs and in the drug and alcohol treatment field that's often mislabeled as sex addiction or out of control sexual behavior because of the, the the pairing of the sexuality and the drug use are so so combined and parallel. Um and so we're really dealing with two separate issues people whose sexual behavior is out of control for a lot of reasons and we can talk about what that looks like and then people whose drug and alcohol use is 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 so commonly linked with their sexual behavior, that if they try to get sober from drugs and alcohol, they it becomes a crisis in their sex life because they have no idea how to be a sexually active human being without being you know, under the influence of drug and alcohol.
2: Ah, uh, so in other words, they've never experienced sober sex.
0: Yes, for many people with high sex struggling behavior, that's one of the common elements. They've never been sexual without being a hired or, or 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 drinking.
2: Mm -hmm. Now, if we are to go down the list, can you gentlemen, as I said, I want to be the student tonight, Mm -hmm. if you were to say, is there a different definition for sexual addiction, Mm -hmm. for sexual compulsivity, Mm -hmm. for hypersexuality, or for out-of-control sexual behavior?
0: I think there are some key distinctions in those, and, and, and Michael and I talk about this often when we train professionals. When we're talking about sex addiction, we're talking about an idea that somebody sees sexual behavior, their sexual life, as a mood-altering experience they've become dependent upon. Like if they were taking Valium or if they were uh, you know, putting alcohol in their body, the, 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 the process of being engaged in sex or pursuing sex or having certain sexual activity from a sex addiction addiction model is seen as a mood-altering experience that the person has now become addicted or dependent upon. And, and so when, when, when people use the term sex addiction, they're describing something as if the sexual activity itself creates a consequence that the person has now become addicted to, the moods, the feeling mm-hmm. states. And right. not everybody who treats issues of out-of-control sexual behavior agrees with that idea. But that's the way some, that when somebody uses the sex addiction term, that's Primarily, the central idea in which they're describing. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a distinction from sex addiction to sexual repulsivity
3: where they're looking at sexual repulsivity as a part of the anxiety dysregulating spectrum. So, uh, the traditional generalized anxiety disorders, phobias, uh, panic disorders, they would classify sexual pulsivity in that spectrum. Uh, so you have a compulsion toward the sexual behavior that's more egodystonic. So similar to the routines of someone who has an obsession or compulsion, it's something that they they, they don't want to have, and okay. that would be in contrast from uh, another term that's that's being is trying to be defined as uh, atypical impulse disorder, where there's an impulse control problem that's more ego that it's more about regulating uh, pleasurable. Uh, experiences rather than trying to regulate anxiety through these type of behaviors.
2: Okay. So, Doug Uh, and and Michael, can I ask Mm -hmm. you, can you, so that people understand, like, can you give me an example of, Doug, sex addiction behavior that, you know, is the mood-altering experience? Can you describe mm-hmm. for me someone in a day-to-day operation of this? Yeah. And in, you know, in regular people terms, I understand ego dystonic, but I know other people may go, eek. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> and, you know, the anxiety deregular, the they're like, what? Yeah. And then, Michael, can you explain to me who would be someone who comes into your office who has the compulsivity and then someone who has atypical impulse?
0: No. So a sex addiction, somebody who comes in and says, you know, I'm a sex addict, first of all, most commonly they're going to come in and that's what they're going to say they are. I think I have a sex addiction. Or my wife told me I have a sex addiction. Or my, my friend thinks I'm addicted to sex. Or that's, that's the most common term almost anybody out in the public will use if they're concerned about their, out of, their, their sexual behavior being out of control. That's the language that almost everybody uses. Right. But, but so, so that's the first thing, is that, it, that that's what people are going to call this, is I have a sex addiction. And usually, what they'll come in and report is the most common complaint is the amount of time spent in thinking about or engaging in sexual activity. Okay. People can spend hours at a computer looking at images online, uh, pursuing sexual activity, looking at sites where sex workers might. Uh, be uh, promoting themselves as somebody to purchase for sex and they may be looking at reviews of sex workers, they may be looking at, you know, being involved in online chat activity of sexual chat, they may be involved in uh, consuming thousands of new images a week or a month of different sexual acts or sexual activity, and it becomes such a preoccupying source of their life that it, their life becomes more about this activity than almost anything else on their mind. Family, okay. marriage, work, career, um, taking care of their health—it uh, just it, this becomes more and more consuming, so that they may be engaged in this activity at the workplace when they should be working. They may should they're engaged in this activity in the middle of the night when they should be sleeping. They're engaged in this activity at home in the evening when they have family obligations or meals to make, or and they may be creating all sorts of lies and distortions and stories about what they're doing to. Um, to uh, kind of justify what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So time spent is a very common symptom of sex addiction. And the second thing is is that people usually have tried to discontinue this behavior and, and have failed every time. Okay. They, just, they, they just don't succeed at stopping. And so those are, the, those are the, what I would say are the key things somebody walks in complaining about when they say they have a sex addiction is, I'm just spending, you know, this has taken over my life and I can't stop.
2: Okay. Now, and and we have one minute until we break, and then Michael, mm-hmm. I'm going to come back with you and do sure. the compulsivity. But this is something that is not just then behavior. It is it um, pardon me. It's not just the actual physical act of being sexual with someone. It is internet.
0: Actually, most of the time spent. Is not in actually having sex or an orgasm or the you know actually you know having sexual contact either with oneself or another. It might be masturbation, but not they could masturbate for hours and never have an orgasm, or they could be looking at images for hours and not even not even have an erection, not even feel excited or aroused. It's it's it becomes almost like a, we'll talk in with some of our clients, it becomes like a trance state. They're they're in a they're really? in an altered mind state, not necessarily one of sexual arousal or interest in having an orgasm.
2: Interesting, and on that happy note of orgasm, we are going to take our break, and gentlemen, we'll talk over the break, okay?
0: Great.
1: This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with your host, Lou Padgett. Techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more sex talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com.
4: Come learn with me as the show created as much for the host as the audience. Join host, Danny Walker, Wednesdays at 11, noon central on toginet.com as she invites you to get your boots on and walk through life's triumphs and troubles with her. Come learn with me is the beginning of a movement, a community filled with caring people who share information, allowing everyone to participate, gain, and grow. What works, what doesn't? Your host, Danny Walker, is a self-proclaimed student, not expert, and she'll share very candidly passions, perspectives, failures, her family's battle with illness, her restaurant inspirations to keep being aware Wife, parent, and more, all the while including industry experts, disease survivors, and guests to add to the mix. For more on Danny and her show, go to DannyWalker.com. D A N I Walker.com. If you've ever searched high and low to find answers to sickness, disease, and debt, come learn with me and let's get our questions answered together. Come learn with me with host Danny Walker, Wednesdays at 11 noon central on TogiNet.com. The American Rock and Roll.
2: Uh, again, this is Lou Paget with Sex Talk with Lou, and a little FYI, if you have your pen handy, you can call in and speak to myself and either of my guests, Douglas Braun Harvey or Michael Vigorito, and we are discussing out-of-control male sexual behavior, and that number is 877-864-4869, repeating again, 877 877- 864-4869. Now, both Michael and Douglas are marriage family therapists. They have they both have clinics in north of in San Diego area. And before the break, Doug gave us a definition of sex addiction. Two main things that often come up is the complaint of the amount of time thinking and doing things, and the second component part to it is that they have tried. To discontinue but have not been able to do so because I asked them give me the definition of what's the difference between sex addiction compulsivity and atypical impulse so now I'm going to bat it over the net mm. to Michael who's going to go over compulsivity
3: yes <laughs> wonderful it's now. remember these terms uh, uh, there's no universal accepted definition. So these mm-hmm. are the theories, and then the research is trying to to establish this as um, the criteria and the diagnosis. So when we're talking about uh, obsessive compulsions, uh, this is something that's an anxiety disorder uh, in the DSM currently.
2: Mm-hmm. So and please explain at, to people what the DSM sure, is. Sure.
3: The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it's uh, colloqu- uh, described sometimes as the Bible for um, mental health diagnoses. So it has all of the diagnoses people would use uh, in the mental health field uh, with all the criteria and definitions um, uh, to help people understand what might be happening for them, either things like uh, psychoses, depression, and also would be used for billing purposes uh, with insurances. Right. So right now there's there's nothing in the DSM that talks about uh, sex addiction or uh, sexual compulsivity. Uh, so compulsivity, if, there, if we're looking at it as an anxiety uh, uh, disorder. Uh, they're looking at the behavior that people are feel compelled to do to uh, not feel anxious. Okay. So uh, people might be um, moving toward having online sexual behavior to feel differently. If they're uh, really stressed, really anxious throughout the day, they might be having some type of sexual behavior to not feel that anxiety. So okay. So the purpose of the sexual behavior is to feel differently.
2: Okay. Uh, is and that... not feel anxious. Right. Now, just, just to jump in, is, sure. uh, people I know who have compulsive hand-washing, that's something that mm-hmm. they do to not have themselves feel anxious? Correct. Is this a similar thing, doing this to not feel
3: anxious? That's the theory, and one of the, the authors of this theory, Eli Coleman, has come back and said that the, the research does not uh, uh, um, support this diagnosis, as uh, sexual behavior as being an anxiety-regulating disorder. Okay. But it's still one of the commonly used labels for, to describe this behavior. Right. Because it's, okay. it's how clients might come in and say, this is how strong this uh, behavior is. It feels like a compulsion. Okay. And that's the way that they're using to, to describe it. The now, atypical impulse disorder mm-hmm. uh, is just another theory that's out there talking about how people regulate themselves when uh, they're in pleasurable states or how they regulate pleasure. And that could be. And things. when you say, mm-hmm.
2: now, Michael, when you say sure. regulate pleasure, what mm-hmm. does that mean? Are they turning a dial? Are they playing with a vibrator? What are they doing? What are they regulating and how are they regulating?
3: Sure. Uh, one way people might be regulating is, is how they approach the, the threshold for orgasm. So there's a term called edging, where people okay. might be online four hours masturbating and kind of moving up to that point of orgasm and then backing away. Okay. So regulating that pleasurable experience. Okay. Uh, Or they'd be regulating the amount of times they have sex uh, either outside of their marriage or the times they they pay for sex. Uh, And so they're they're regulating that pleasurable moment.
2: So when you say the impulse disorder of this, Mm -hmm. the atypical part of it is that they are spending the four hours edging, or is the atypical part that... This is normally something that they would like to do, but they know they're not supposed to do it, so now they're regulating it.
3: I think the atypical part is part of the field's attempt to distinguish it from the other impulse disorders that are in the DSM.
2: Okay, so we're looking at the theories of this, and that's what Correct. gets. Well, this is one of the things that what,
0: what I could add would be what a client might say, Lou, mm-hmm. with this impulse uh, control issue. Right. Is they may walk in and they'll use the language of, I feel this urge. It just it comes over me. I, 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 I you know like they'll say it's like somebody else was driving the car. I just had to go to the sex shop and uh, you know sit in a booth and masturbate for half an hour, or right. I, I just had to go to the stripper. There's a there's this kind of this. Experience they have inside of being impelled like an impulse they just they, they feel like they have no control over that urge state, mm-hmm. and so people who kind of might think they have low impulse control or i, I can 't control my impulses are people that report that the sexual behavior follows this intensely felt urge state that they they have no understanding of where it comes from, why does it happen, you know, and they just feel like they have no ability to kind of Prevent these intense urge states from overcoming them, okay. And so, so people with that that will talk from an impulse control uh, kind of perspective might report that that's a big part of their experience. That these these sudden urges that are so intense they just propel them towards uh, a repetitive sex act or a new sex act or um, uh, you know a, 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 a you know seeking sex. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what they'll that's what they'll kind of report in their behavior.
2: Okay. One of the things I'd like to bounce off of both of you is, how do you deal with people walking in and using examples from the media? And I'm going to throw out a couple of them here and say that, you know, I'd like you to just respond how you would when people would make comments, you know. Relative to Tiger Woods, I have an issue with media as really what is entertainment trying to act like it is a therapist and an educator in this area. Mm-hmm. And the person who I would really take to task on this is Drew Pinsky. Mm-hmm. And honestly, can you explain? I,
0: can you explain a bit about that, Lou? Maybe people maybe need okay. to hear about um, Drew Pinsky yeah. and, and why you're saying that.
2: Right, um, Dr. Drew Pinsky is an addict. Uh, he's an addictionologist who has a practice in Pasadena who really he bought a gerontology and an older aging population uh, practice and his area of specialty has been addiction. When he was on Love Lines, his main response, two things. Now, I like Drew. I have done shows with Drew. I have pitched programs with Drew. What I know is that he does know the addiction area. He does not know the area of sexuality, Mm -hmm. which is why I was brought in as the best-selling author and certified sex educator. Mm -hmm. And what I have found is that whenever the issue of sexuality comes up, he goes to a default comment of, "Were, uh, were drugs or alcohol involved? So then he goes to what he can speak to and he ignores or does not properly cover or have the skill set to deliver the information in the area of sexuality and addiction. Mm-hmm. And the show Sex Rehab I'm like look we all know what reality shows are they are a train wreck waiting to happen.
0: Mm-hmm. We all know that That's we've got... the entertainment value of them, right? Correct. People are waiting for to see something dramatically awful happen and people right. yelling and screaming. Or you know, and, a, and you know, Tiger Woods, birth. you
2: know, number one mistress goes and you know she does this thing, you know, for the boyfriend who was killed in you know the World Trade Towers, and it's like that is not something that is part of what really. It, it, that's not what this this subject area is about. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, when people said to me, you know, what's going on with Tiger Woods? Well, you know, and and Doug, you and I spoke about this, and Mm -hmm. Michael, I'm sure you'd say the same thing. I've not treated him, mm-hmm, I've not spoken mm-hmm. with him, and mm-hmm. I can't make any comments on this.
0: And I think that's really important, Lou, is that uh, to, to the, the media the, and these, these the common places in which people gain access to even what does sex addiction look like? What does compulsive sexual behavior look like? Right. What, what is that even about? Unfortunately, the primary means in which people have any contact with this information is those those kind of media outlets.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, when when the sex rehab show was on, and you know, Michael and I do groups for men without a control sexual behavior, and you know, people would talk about what it was like to have this very very important treatment that they find life saving for them mm-hmm. uh, be the fodder of of entertainment. And and it was it was uh, it was it was a real eye opener to have people who are actually in the treatment uh, see what it was like to see their lives kind of uh, you know uh, supposedly uh, being accurately viewed on and they Mm-hmm. How and,
2: how did they feel about it? Let, let's say they're at home and say they're watching this. They're, what was their reaction when they come into the group with with you gentlemen?
3: Some of them were angry. I remember uh, because of the treatment that they were experiencing, trying to rebuild some of their lives. Uh, they didn't have some of the the benefits of uh, celebrity or the, the prestige or the wealth, uh, and so they were. A lot of them were angry regarding the 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 spectacle that it was being made of their recovery Mm -hmm. when really they wanted to be able to rebuild their lives and then uh, kind of achieve their vision of sexual health.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. Uh, Much of it was a very shameful experience for them. Uh, So they would utilize their individual work to prepare themselves for their group work. And you don't really have those steps in uh, the reality TV show world where
0: everything is exposed to uh, the world. Right. right. So so the, the the thing that I thought was really particularly um difficult to watch for me in that program was situations that are extremely vulnerable and personal to mm-hmm. talk about and these people have no idea that 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 part of their life, that segment of something very difficult and painful to talk about, about their sexual lives, is now being recorded and shown around the world to people. And, you know, and, you know the clients we work with, it takes them a great deal of time to, to, feel, to get honest and open about the details of their sex lives with their spouse, the people they've hurt, the people that mm-hmm. this behavior has really injured, mm-hmm. and, the, and the vulnerability in discussing and disclosing that. And uh, and how important that is to the healing process. And and, and, when... and and
2: that's and that's really what we're talking about here. And we're going to go to break probably in about ten seconds. Mm-hmm. We're talking about sexual health and sexual healing. Yes, and yes. that's what your group therapy does, and your group sessions with men. And we will be back after this break with myself, Lou Paget, Doug Brown, Harvey, and Michael Vigorito.
1: This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with your host, Lou Padgett. Techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more sex talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com. Everyday
4: Autism Miracles with Shannon Pinlock. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on TogiNet.com. Life after an autism spectrum diagnosis doesn't have to be difficult. It can be joyful, happy, and filled with hope. Join Shannon Pinrod, author, speaker, coach, and mom of a six-year-old recovering from autism for this inspirational hour of hope. She's even authored a series of children's autism books with her son, Jim. For more information about the books, Shannon, and Everyday Autism Miracles, go to her website, shannonpinrod.com. From there, you can also get to her other websites, blogs, and connections. On Everyday Autism Miracles, you'll hear stories from parents whose children have made miraculous strides. You'll also get the inside dish on therapies, treatments, supplements, and how to get funding to help you afford them. Miracles abound in the autism community. So tune in for Everyday Autism Miracles to listen, share, laugh, and surround yourself with hope. Everyday Autism Miracles with Shannon Penrod. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com.
3: Hello, everybody. This is Pete Dix
4: asking if you'll join me
3: on Beatles and Beyond on this radio station. What a show I've got in store for you. Not only all the Apple reissues that I'll be looking at, some very rare tracks indeed, a report on my evening watching and listening to Neil Innes of the Ruttles and the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band. So please join me, Pete Dix, with Beatles and Beyond, on this radio station.
1: Welcome back to Sex Talk.
2: Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Douglas Braun Harvey and Michael Vigorito, and we are discussing male sexual behavior and specifically out-of-control male sexual behavior. They have an outstanding program they have created in their, their separate clinics in San Diego area, and they do group sessions for men. And one of the things that I think often we do not have enough validation of is having men know that there are places where they can go and feel safe and take control of their lives again. And, you know, as we said just before the break, we're talking about sexual health and healing sexual health. Mm-hmm. So, gentlemen, we are talking about how the media is not necessarily our best friend when it comes to giving examples or saying this person's a sex addict. I mean, David mm-hmm. Duchovny is, you know, a sex addict because he spends time on the Internet and he's in the, you know, the show Californication.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's, so what, how do you respond when there is a someone comes in and says, well, I'm just like so-and-so?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, one question would be, uh, tell me how you came to that conclusion.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, to open up a dialogue. So sometimes labels conceal more than they reveal, so okay. I want to know what the details are of how they came to that that conclusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the jokes that we uh, typically provide when we're, we're talking to other providers is, uh, you know, if a, a client goes to a doctor's office and says, I have cancer, the doctor's not going to go, well, thank God I don't have to run all those tests. Uh, <laughs> We, we want to be able to have that, that conversation to be able to understand how they got there uh, and understand uh, how they uh, kind of adopted that label for themselves, what makes that consistent with what their, the, their behavior is.
0: Right. And, and, and what that label means to them. Mm-hmm. We're less interested initially in, in educating what that label means to us. We start the dialogue by trying to figure out what they're trying to say to us. What are they okay. wanting us to understand about themselves by using those terms?
2: Right. Now, the other thing that when I was reading your site, Michael, mm-hmm. and you have and you put together treatment plans and objectives mm-hmm. based on what the person brings into you know, your office with mm-hmm. you, typically how long would it take, or is there no such how long would it take, for someone who wants to address and deal with out-of-control sexual behaviors for the men, but you work work solely with men.
3: Correct, yes. Uh, To come up with that treatment plan, uh, what I tell my clients is that it usually takes anywhere between four to eight sessions where we do uh, a clinical interview. We do have some standardized measures uh, where we want to be able to understand their behavior and the patterns uh, that we see uh, in their history. So I want to be able to create that space where we we go back, similar to a generalist, where we'll uh, go back through a general psychological and social history, and then a more specific sexual health assessment. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what I usually tell them is at the end, hopefully the treatment recommendations and plan aren't a surprise. Because I was doing my job, I was raising my client's awareness of what's been going on so we can then create treatment recommendations based on what their sexual health
0: goals are. So the the way we really look at this, Lou, is we want the, the, the man himself to have an environment where he can maybe for the first time think about what is his vision for sexual health? How does he want his life to be led so that his sexuality is a source of health esteem, value, uh, uh, connection, love, uh, you know, pride, well-being, rather than a source of shame, secrecy, uh, humiliation, or ignorance. And, and, it, it, and, and most men in our culture have very few, if any, environments in which they can go and talk with an informed sexual health Uh, You know, trained professional who can have an open and responsive dialogue with them to figure out what their vision, the client's vision of sexual health is, not what the authority or the professional thinks their vision of sexual health should be.
2: Um, may I say, you know, I'm high-fiving you here. Bottom line,
0: mm-hmm.
2: when we know that the three main areas where people go if they are having issues with sexuality, be it in a relationship or be it, you know, the their, you know, physiology, they'll go to a physician, an MD. Mm-hmm. They will go to a therapist, or they will go to someone of faith, and none of those three areas gets a good basis in sexual health education. If MDs have 8 hours in 4 years and I'm sorry to sound like a broken record on this one, but it is true, they don't get and it's often optional. I mean, I'm going to be teaching at UCLA. Next week I do um, I'm part of a year-long course and I'm one of the only people who addresses the impact of medications on the, you know, the erosion of people's sexual function. I'm like mm-hmm. I mean, hello, and have a coffee.
0: (laughs) So for listeners, then, it's really important for them to know that because you're going to your doctor, because you're going to your psychotherapist, or because you're going to your clergy, priest, rabbi, or religious leader. Iman,
2: whoever it may be. Iman,
0: whoever it may be, that that the the client, the the congregant, the believer, the patient, will think of that person as a well-informed sexual health expert. Mm-hmm. They, they, they They will often give that person that role you you must know a lot about this because you are in this role in society mm-hmm. and for listeners it's really important to remind them that just because somebody's in that professional role does not mean they have any really good, up-to-date information about sexual health. When I I, I teach human sexuality at San Diego State, uh, Michael and I co-teach, actually, uh, for masters of level people who are becoming therapists. And one of the things we remind them is most of what we know about human sexuality from a research perspective has been only known for the last 40 or 50 years. That's true. So that their parents... depending on the age of the student, or definitely their grandparents, have had little to none of the information they're going to learn in this class when they were growing up, when they were getting married, and when they were considering having children. This is knowledge that's so new on the planet that the people that are in leadership and respected positions of authority, when they were getting that information, it wasn't even there to be had, no less Mm -mm. not available. No, and sexual then what happens. science hap- is a very new field of good it, information.
2: It is, and, and the field of sexuality and sexual health is
0: huge. It is I mean, very huge. It's a wide open and it, because sexual health is so central to human beings.
2: It, it is. It's how you feel about yourself. It's how you operate on a day to day basis. It's how you identify. It's how you have people react to you. It's how it's every part psychologically, physiologically, emotionally. I mean, it's just it's huge. And it's also something we should be entitled to have the accurate information to help us when, you know, when we have issues with it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, there are a couple of things about sexual health that I think are so basic, they, they're, the, they're the foundation. They have to be understood before any other aspect of sexual health that is more nuanced is understood. Mm-hmm. And the most important one of all of these is is the sex you're having consensual or non-consensual.
2: Thank you. And please tell me, uh, you made a comment when we were speaking of you, know, you coming on the show of the non-consensual forms of behavior mm-hmm. that can occur.
0: Yes. And, you know, there's a lot of euphemisms and metaphors for nonconsensual sex in our society. Sex offenders, uh, perverts, uh, child sex offenders, um, uh, you know, voyeurs, uh, you know, uh, exhibitionists, predators. 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 This is the language in the media, in the news, in, you know, in our general day-to-day conversation, uh, uh, you know, incest, sexual abuse. These These are the words we have that describe various aspects and rape, Uh, uh, these are all the words we have for various aspects of non-consensual sex. But what's fascinating is how little the term non-consent is used in the overall discussion in our society about the most important sexual health health norm there is. Almost everywhere in the planet, every country has some definition of when sex is consensual and when it's not. It's the most fundamental issue of sex. Have I given you permission to touch me and have that contact with me? And have I gauged that you have given me permission in order to be having this contact? It's so fundamental. And yet many people don't even realize how essential that is to their sexual health, that always sex should be consensual, always.
2: Now, you also mentioned that you only have The men in your group who it has been consensual. And you send people, you send, you know, people who are dealing with non consensual issues to other therapists who are trained specifically in the modalities for that.
0: Yes. Maybe, Correct. Michael, you want to talk more about
3: that. Sure. It's one of the preliminary criteria that we have when someone walks in our door and, you know, says, I'm such a compulsive sex addict. We make certain we ask the question, is the sex that you're involved in consensual? And that could be a whole host of things. We want to make certain, for instance, if they're looking at online sexual behavior, is everyone that you're looking at of the age of consent? Mm-hmm. Uh, is this a webcam that people don't realize they're being filmed if it's in a lavatory in someone's bedroom? Okay. Uh, we want to be able to assess that level of consent, and if that's present, then we would like to make a referral to a specialist because those, those issues that they're going to be dealing with are going to be different than the issues that the guys that we're seeing who are involved in potential sexual behavior. For instance, okay. much of our work is about integrating what's erotic to them into their sexual health plan and into their lives. If someone who has a non-consensual element to their erotic uh, uh, template or their own eroticism, that goal is not going to be the same.
2: I, I can you go over that one statement? So, for example, integrating so what's erotic?
3: Correct. What is it that turns them on?
2: Right. Okay. What, what is it is that's
3: going to help them achieve orgasm? Or, uh, or
2: achieve a form of sexual satisfaction?
3: Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. So, part of our assessment, did we 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 Look at their own eroticism uh, to see kind of what brings them pleasure. What might they be pursuing in sex? Because we want to create a, a healthy, happy, pleasurable sexual health plan for this client because uh, we all know that sex is inherent in pleasure of being human. We, we don't want to have them create a boring sexual health because We know that's not going to be fun, and they're not going to be motivated for that. And they're not going to so, stick so, with
0: that. So, 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 Lou, one of the things we tell our clients very early in treatment is that treatment for out-of-control sexual behavior is not an erotic ectomy. Okay, thank we are you. Not, we are not here to remove or, dis, or, or, or cut out an aspect of what is pleasurably and meaningfully sexually erotic for them. Mm-hmm. This is, and we can do this because we're working with consensual sex. Uh, and so it's not about removing something. Oh, you know what? It's about helping them understand why that's a meaningful part of their sexuality and how can they learn to accept that and then figure out what their life plan is for integrating it into their sexual life with their partner and themselves.
2: That is so powerful, and we are going to break on that. We will be back after, and we will continue. I'm going to come back with some examples.
1: This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with your host, Lou Paget. Techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more sex talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com.
4: Christian Work-At-Home Moms, here is
1: your own show on TogiNet.
4: It's CWAM, Christian Work-at-Home Moms, with Jill Hart and Diana Innan, Thursdays at 10 a.m. Central on Toginet. Um, I'd love to share with you just a little bit about how CWAM can help you, whether you are new to the work-at-home world and just starting out your search, or whether you've been working at home for a while and are looking to grow your business. Jill Hart is the founder of Christian Work-at-Home Moms, CWAM.com, and co-author of So You Want to Be a Work-at-Home Mom. Jill has worked from home from 2000 and started her home-based business to assist other Christians who desire to work from home while maintaining a godly life. And Diana Ennett with VirtualWordPublishing.com.
0: I really, truly want to see you succeed. want to share the joy that I have in being home with my kids and being able to build my own business.
4: And she's ready to help you now. Christian Work at Home Moms with Jill Hart and Diana Ennett. Thursdays at 10 a.m. Central on Toginow. Now. It's time to get your boots on. With the Boot Campaign, with hosts Megan Roth and Bailey Gray, Thursdays at noon, 1 Central on TogiNet.com, sponsored by Austin Bank. The whole point of the Boot Campaign is to continue the true grassroots initiative developed by a group of patriotic women known as the Boot Girls. Inspired by the true story of Marcus Latrell, the lone survivor, the Boot Girls got started with celebrities but want every American to get your boots on by purchasing a pair of the Give Back Combat Boots. The campaign's motto is simple When they come back, we give back. For more on the Boot Campaign, go to the website, bootcampaign.com. The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show will feature discussions on current events impacting the lives of active duty and retired military, interviews with our nation's war heroes, medical professionals, and celebrities who have put their boots on. Do your part and join us for the Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show with Megan Roth and Baby Gray, Thursdays at noon, 1 p.m. Central, on toginet.com.
2: I am here with Douglas Braun Harvey and Michael Vigorito, both who are marriage family therapists in San Diego area. They have a uh, group session that they do for men who have out-of-control sexual behavior in a consensual manner. Now, what I ask, so gentlemen, can you each have... One example of someone presenting, and be really as specific as you can so that our listeners can can be able to relate on a kind of like a, a nuts and bolts level on mm-hmm. what these men are presenting with, how they walk in the door, what the plan is, how they can integrate what is already erotic for them. Because you said, Doug, it's not an erotic ectomy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what can... so.
0: Tagged, well, I'll, I'll give an example of a man who might walk in the office. He has very strong and powerful religious beliefs about religion and sexuality. And he also has a very particular source of arousal that's very important to him. And it may be he likes to dress in women's clothing, as part of his erotic arousal and, and, and sexual experience, and his religion will tell him that is uh, either sinful against God, uh, you know, not normal, uh, you know, just not in line with his creed and religious beliefs. And so he comes in with a very specific conflict. You know, this is—I've always been excited by this. I've always wanted to do this. I've—I've I've even my wife knows about it and, and things like that. But 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 he'll he'll call that turn on his sex addiction. Okay. I'm addicted to that. He won't he won't see it as a part of what's a meaningful and enjoyable and actually quite for whatever reason and we could that's part of therapy figuring that out, but this is nonetheless an enduring source of arousal and erotic a pleasure for him in sex, mm-hmm. but he's conflicted with it because of other beliefs and other messages from other sources in the culture, and oftentimes these what we call a kind of uh, a, a self discrepancy, an internal conflict with one's what turns one on. the The way that gets. Uh, understood in our society is to call that unconventional, uh, judged, uh, you know, you know, kind of thought of as strange and weird turn-on. It will be called a sex addiction because that's the language people have for things that are strange like that. And they'll call the the fact that they want that turn-on and it's so important to them, they'll say, I'm addicted to that turn-on.
2: Mm-hmm. Because that's and, the only term we have so far. Because that's all—that's
0: only language we have. Because uh, uh, we don't have a very many positive words for these kinds and these ways in which people feel and experience sexual pleasure. Unusual, you know, a fetish is—you know—can uh, be a word for this, but it may not always be a fetish when people have these particular turn-ons. Um, uh-huh. You know, we have to figure that out too. How—how how specific and hardwired is that turn-on? For some people who have unconventional turn-ons, it, it, it may not have been dressing in women's clothes that was exciting for him, it might have been a certain fabric he was interested in. It was only women's clothing that had that fabric or touch. It could be an odor or a smell that goes with the clothing that's only accessible through a woman's clothing, and so he doesn't even know that it's really the odor that's the arousing object, not the clothing. So there's a lot of things that have to be kind of understood, and if it's completely put in the, the category of sex addiction, then all of that goes unexplored because That's all an addiction that has to be stopped and abstained from.
2: Right. Now, here, for this man, who had the very strong, powerful religious beliefs, and -hmm. his wife did know. Now, was his wife okay with it?
0: No. Both he and his wife were waiting for him to stop this so they could be good in the eyes of God.
2: Oh. So somehow God was telling him that this
0: was wrong. Well, not somehow he he was a okay. religious leader his, his 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 faith book his you know the, the, I mean you know his scripture they are saying it's wrong it's not just he's making it up these are real messages
2: Okay. So how did you work with him?
0: Well, first of all, I had to, he had to get a lot of sexual health information. We had to really, he had to be open to talking about the nature of this turn-on, what it was for him, the history of it, like Michael talked about, you know, what's the right. history, mm-hmm. and, 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 and sort of suspend judgment for a period of time, suspend conclusion. Let's just try to understand this behavior and not try to eliminate it or, or make it bad or call an addiction right away. Let's just try to understand it. That okay. took time. That took a lot of time. And then he had to figure out what is his goal for this behavior. What is Mm -hmm. his goal? Not my goal, not Mm -hmm. his church's goal, not his wife's goal, not his society's goal. What is his goal with this part of his sexual life? And he's never been given permission to ask that. It's always been about conforming with somebody else's idea of who he should be. Right, so this puts
2: him back in in his own driver's seat. And
0: that's Mm -hmm. the answer to your question of how does somebody have control over this. I'm not invested in the outcome of how he decides to live with this turn-on, but I'm invested that it's his choice because it's his turn off. Now, that's that
2: is, that is that's powerful to hear that. Michael, we've mm-hmm. probably only got a few minutes left, and I want to make sure. sure. Now, now, Doug, did you complete with that? Is that well, I how think, that Yeah, I on? think
0: that's an, that gives a, a bit of the map. Yeah.
2: Okay. So, Michael, give me an example of a gentleman you were dealing with.
3: Sure. A client who came in uh, concerned about online sexual behavior, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that was his presenting problem. His wife discovered the behavior, the time it took, uh, and it's also impacting the sexual frequency and satisfaction in their relationship. Mm -hmm. So he was identified as as a sex addict in that relationship and then came to see me for the assessment. So in the assessment, uh, it turned out that he had uh, a co-occurring anxiety disorder, uh, just met criteria for generalized anxiety disorder, and the reason why it's important is that it's one of our preliminary uh, criteria is we want to see is there uh, any pre-existing psychiatric concern that we need to address because that could address some of the sexual symptoms.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So I brought in a, a, um, another specialist psychiatrist to, meet, to to help treat with the anxiety disorder. And why that was being co-treated, we started talking about what was happening for him uh, with his sexual behavior. And it turned out uh, he was pursuing uh, an unconventional turn-on as well uh, regarding themes of dominance.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and this was something that he had not shared with his wife. His wife didn't know what the details were. And I was the first person to ask him, Well, what is it that you're actually looking at? Because mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's one of my rule outs about consent. And this is when that theme came out. Uh, and in, it took him about, I would say, 10 to 15 minutes to actually say these words about what he was looking at, which mm-hmm. let me know that there's a lot of shame here. Okay. Uh, so because he, he kind of met the, the acuity level to go into group, like it, this was a pretty uh, destructive behavior that he was getting involved in that was impacting his relationship and impacting his work because he was also looking at, uh, at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we brought him into group, and we used individual to help him prepare for group to work through that shame. It, uh, if he was able to integrate this part of his eroticism into his identity, he can then assert his needs a little more in his relationship. So he started out talking about an individual, then he brought it to group and to share that with a bunch of men about the specifics of his uh, erotic uh, charges and his sexual behaviors It was a very difficult and shame-provoking experience for him. Uh, but he was able to endure it and move through it in a non-judgmental, safe environment. Right. So then he could take that experience and bring it into his marriage to help integrate areas of his own, of autism, to increase his sexual satisfaction in the relationship.
2: Right now, let me ask you. Yes, he was, and I have, because I know when I deal with men and with women, but more so with men, they'll mm-hmm. say, "Oh my, not want to even talk about what my fantasy is, because they're going to think, I'm so freaking mark, and I'm just like, "This is, I'm not going to expose my wife to this, yet it is the turn-on. Correct. And... Was he able to integrate that with his wife and have his wife be understanding of this and something that could be part of their sexual
3: dialogue? Correct, and uh, he was uh, able to do that. I've had other clients where it was more difficult, where the wife was not as willing
0: uh, or interested uh, in participating in that type of sexual play. Mm -hmm. or there's another dilemma that may come up, and that is some people with these uh, their, their particular unconventional turn-ons, they may discover they cannot feel sufficiently sexually aroused with this turn-on with somebody they have love or close affection for. They can yeah. only do it with somebody they have little to no emotional connection with or perhaps is even a total stranger. Mm-hmm. And um, that adds in a whole yeah. another level of shame to this, that mm-hmm. I'd like to integrate this into my relationship. The dilemma is the minute I'm trying to engage in this sex act that's so pleasurable to me, and I feel affection or love or this person knows me, I can't get aroused.
2: Right. I had a, a gentleman who his number one thing was he wanted to be able to masturbate in front of women, but it could only be women he did not know.
0: Right. And
2: it put him at serious risk for a number of things. I mean, it, you know, exposure, and this was an MD.
0: Now let me ask you this, Lou, because this is the basic question: Was he doing this with consent or non-consent to the women? Non-consent. Who was consent, so, that, non-consent. so you see, you see why that's such an important criteria there. He, that that's a non-consensual activity.
2: Right, he, and this is, and that's what you know. That's what he would do. Oh, gentlemen, we could go on for forever yes. now. <laughs> what I'd also like, please, we have I think two minutes left. Mm-hmm. Doug, you are going to be going to Maryland to yes, do. I'm a... going
0: to the, um, the state of Maryland, is, 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 which, by the way, is surprisingly the highest per capita rate of, an, of HIV infection rates in the country. Yikes. And so why the State of Maryland is interested in having me come there is my intervention around sex-drug-linked. They're right. combining people who work with HIV treatment and drug and alcohol treatment together to be trained in this, the curriculum I've developed on relapse prevention for people in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction who have high sex-drug-linked behavior. Mm-hmm. And they're seeing this as a potential to help people in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction who may be HIV-infected or highly at risk to become HIV-infected by teaching them sexual. Mm-hmm health approaches to recovery uh, and, and not and, and in drug and alcohol treatment. Sexuality is often an avoided or feared topic. And oh, the state of Maryland yeah. is taking leadership in this area and saying, as a state, as the drug and alcohol services we provide to our, our residents of our state through our government dollars, we're interested in the possibility of giving them an opportunity to improve their treatment outcomes by giving them an opportunity to have good sexual health information provided which in is, their drug and alcohol treatment as a is, way to increase... Huge recovery and decrease their relapse risk.
2: Right. Now, we are going to have to jump here. My guests have been Doug Braun Harvey, Michael Vigorito. I'm Lou Paget, Sex Talk with Lou. Join me next week, Wednesday, www.loupaget.com. And thank you again.
1: With host Lou Paget. Every week, this will be your chance to be a fly on the wall and learn about one of the most important parts of our health, our sexual health. Join Lou Padgett. She.